Okay, make noise. Scott, can you hear me? Okay, don't scare Lacey. All right, well, I'm so excited to be back with you guys and be able to open God's Word. As I said earlier, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We've been going through the series called, what was it called? Does anyone remember? Back to Basics, and it has like the Back to the Future font that Laura used, which was awesome. And we're going through different foundations in the Christian faith. We are defining and applying those foundations. And so today, we're going to be talking about prayer. This kind of feels a little like a family reunion, a little bit, and like I said a little bit before, I have not spoken in front of people more than just Keith with a camera in over seven months, and so this is nuts to me, and it's great, and I know that there are things like reverb with the speaker and stuff like that, but we get to join together to open God's Word. My hope is that no one's just entertained today, that we hear God's Word and we ferociously try to find ways to put it into practice in our families and in our friendships and in the connections that we have around each other. Today, as I said, we're going to cover prayer, and we're going to talk about how prayer can grow us and change us and transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. I think prayer is a universal discipline amongst most religions. It isn't too scandalous to say that I pray or that I will pray for you. In fact, many people add that my thoughts and prayers are with you. And I just had this moment of realizing I'm 10 feet away. Can, may I take off my mask? Is that okay? Sarah said yes. Okay, I'm going to do it. This is what my beard looks like now, so everybody knows. And I lost 30 pounds since March. Very happy about that. Very happy about that. So as we talk about prayer, now, now I hear myself even more. Here's the thing. Prayer is not like just thinking. It is actually a dialogue with God himself. That's what prayer is. Notice that I said dialogue and not monologue. Even though many of us treat prayer like our opportunity to ask God for stuff, it is so much more than that. And I think we kind of miss out on how beautiful prayer is. It all depends on how we view our relationship with God. I'd actually contend that two people never, ever view prayer exactly the same way, nor do they experience the exact same thing in prayer with God. Even though, uh, but I guess the question is why? Why do we not exactly experience the same thing in prayer? I talk to people, and a lot of times when they talk about their prayer life, it seems different than mine, and that doesn't mean mine is better and theirs is or theirs is worse, but why is it different? Because ultimately, our relationships in this world are not identical. My relationship with each of my children is different, and even though they may see me in a similar way, our experiences together are different based on maturity and stage of life. Now, we know that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, but we also know that we are in this constant process of development as we learn and lean on and obey Christ at his word. We grow more into his likeness. That's something that we continue to talk about as a church, as our lives and our Christian walk and our prayer life are all being developed progressively as well. So today, as we jump into the subject of prayer, I'd like to begin with Jesus's words spoken to his disciples, and we will be studying what he says documented in the book of Luke by the doctor and historian Luke in his letter to Theophilus, known as the book of Luke. But why Jesus' words? Why specifically focus on the red letter, if you will, of what Jesus said about prayer? 
Because as we're going to see in this text, Jesus didn't just talk a lot about prayer. He was a man of prayer. In his human likeness, he prayed. And in his deity, he interceded and he also answered prayers. So Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus, again, didn't just talk about prayer. He modeled it. In fact, Luke, in Luke, we see Jesus praying a lot, like a lot, a lot. Let me give you some examples. Jesus was a man of prayer. He was praying when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. He began his ministry with a 40-day fast in the wilderness while praying, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Other times when he withdrew to the wilderness in chapter 5, verse 16, he was praying, he was praying alone just before Peter, at, or right before he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? In nine, chapter 9, verse 18. Just before he was transfigured, he, he took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to what? Pray. Chapter 9, verse 28. And he was praying here at the beginning of our text in chapter 11, verse 1, as a man, Jesus sought his strength and his guidance from the Father in prayer. So this is why we want to take so seriously what Jesus has to say about prayer as he modeled it, but also as he taught his disciples who had been with him for quite a while. It's interesting that they didn't just pick up prayer by watching it. I think this is something that a lot of times, if you've just come into the faith, if you've just become a Christian, you just kind of watch other people pray and you kind of do it the way that they do it, and then you say Father God a lot, right? Like that's what happens. And yet there was this thing about even though they had seen Jesus pray a lot, they still asked him to explain to them, how do you pray? We as a community at Church of the Valley, we really, really value equipping. From our children's ministry, to the people that serve in that ministry, to our worship ministry, to teaching, to community groups, to a prayer ministry, and all the other things that we do, we really want to focus on not just doing the ministry, but bringing others alongside us as we do the ministry. It's one of the reasons that we teach this specific thing. It, it, we call it equipping, but we also talk about apprenticeship. And it's this thing, you've heard me talk about it, Karen Miller talk about it, and others. We talk about I do, you watch, we talk. And then you go, I do, you help, we talk. You do, I help, we talk. And then you do, I watch, we talk. And the idea is to help people not just have to be thrown into something and do it, but to actually be walked through and apprenticed through that entire situation. And the reason behind those four steps are because we think that watching, trying, and talking are all really necessary to learning. And as these disciples have spent a lot of time with Jesus, they may have seen him model it, they may have even attempted to do it, but they needed to hear from Jesus how to do it because they needed the teacher to teach them. The disciples' question was rooted in John the Baptist, just so we're clear on what John they were talking about what he had done with his disciples. There's a really good chance that John might have not only modeled it, but taught his disciples how to pray. But what we're going to see is Jesus talks about this, and what we're going to study is what many people know as the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to hear that the Lord's Prayer, no matter how you've grown up, the Lord's Prayer is not a formula to get God to do what you want. The Lord's Prayer is about a motivation, and it's all about the one that we pray to. As Mike said during his confession sermon a few weeks back, that confession is about our relationship with God before anything else. And so as we look at prayer today, I want to state the obvious. Prayer is a dialogue with God in relationship. 
That's what prayer is about. So please don't read or understand Jesus' words as a template for what you must say when you pray or a formula of how to get what you want, but the heart and the motivation behind prayer and how Jesus, our Savior, prayed. We too can have the same heart posture, not just regurgitating words, but actually doing this in a motivation to make much of Jesus as we pray to God. So here's what it says in verse 2. As he was talking to his disciples, here's how he put it. He said, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, I know how many of us literal readers of the Bible take this. Anyone want to admit they're a literal reader of the Bible? Okay, thanks, Laura. Appreciate that. Thank you, Adam. Awesome. I, th I think that's who you guys are. I can't totally. Okay, good. All right, sweet. <laughs> I know how we will read stuff like this where we might think in order to obey Jesus, we have to do what he says. And he said, when you pray, say. That was loud. So whatever he says now becomes what I would call our mantra for how we pray because we want to get it right. And the heart behind doing, reading the Bible literally and wanting to do what God says, there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to obey Jesus based on what he intends and what he means, not just only what he says. I understand why you might see it that way. I might understand why you hear the Lord's Prayer and you say, this is why we say it this way. We just regurgitate. But let's unpack what he meant when he said, Father, stop. He could say, God, provider, Lord. There are a lot of terms that come to mind when addressing God. But Jesus Christ uses Father an endearing term that promotes God's authority and love over his people. Jesus is God's only son, but I look at many of you and know many of you, and I know where you stand with God because I've spent time with you and I've heard you speak of your relationship with God. Jesus is God's only son, but we are adopted into his family through Jesus' perfect record and his atonement for our sins. Now listen, I have not heard an amen in seven months, so give me something. Okay, because that's gospel. So we too can call God Father, knowing that he is a loving Father, a good shepherd, a wonderful provider, and loves us based on Jesus' righteousness, gifted to us. So we don't have to attempt to earn or strive to make him love us more. I might actually have to say that again because I don't want you to miss it. We don't have to attempt to earn or strive to make God love us more. He loves us perfectly in and because of his son and his son's gift of eternal life. So, Father, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> this isn't a term we use in 2020 English, but it means God's name be glorified, be magnified, be made much of, and a name would also point out one's standing and reputation. And this request doesn't at all seem like the type of prayer that I know I tend to pray because when I start to pray, I just focus on myself. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. Scott, he was, oh, thank you. You were mostly just holding the pole. That's good. And this request doesn't at all seem like the type of prayer that I, I will generally pray when I'm focusing on myself. I tend to focus on the things that I want, the things I want to get out of God. But Jesus begins with this request that points directly to his number one concern, that God would get glory and that his name would be made much of. So not only hallowed be thy name, 
but your kingdom come. Your kingdom advance. Your kingdom be upon all the earth. This is something that I know I want. But when I pray, it's almost an additive to my prayer rather than my directive of why I'm praying in the first place. So Jesus begins with the glory of God's name and the advancement of God's kingdom. And don't forget that if you're taking notes. Remember the glory of God's name and the advancement of God's kingdom because we're going to come back to that at the end. And his primary concerns for his prayers were to make much of God, that God would be made famous. And he says we should do likewise. John Calvin, the theologian, said it this way, when we pray for the kingdom of God and the sanctification of God's name, our eyes ought to be directed upwards so as to lose sight of ourselves and to be fixed on God alone. But when it isn't our main concern in prayer, and if we're struggling with the fact that this isn't how we pray, it's the wonderful thing about prayer in general is that prayer is not to change God's mind We do it to become in line with God's will. Now, I know for a fact a lot of you, what I just said is like going against how you viewed the Bible. Wait, what do you mean? When I pray, I'm trying to change God's mind. And you might even think, well, what about about Abraham? What about Moses? Weren't they trying to change God's mind? And if you look at the greater context, if you look at the fact that when they prayed, they really just needed to come in line with what God was going to do but it requires our willingness to trust him in prayer, to be persistent in prayer. So if you're like me, your natural bent in prayer is to get stuff out of God. You spend more time in prayer asking God to help you align with his will. Seems like uh, maybe I'll eventually do that, but really there's some things that I just want from God. And yet Jesus is saying that when we pray, we should exalt God's name and want to advance God's kingdom. This isn't natural. It's not natural at all. In fact, it is supernatural. As our wills are conformed more to God's will in prayer. So coming out of this heart posture of wanting God to be magnified, Jesus then tells his disciples that in prayer we should say, or really he alludes to this idea in verse 3. Here's what he says. Give us each our daily bread. This also can be translated to provide us bread for tomorrow. But the point is that we are acknowledging that God is the great provider. But I guess often we wonder in prayer if God provides at all. Why should we ask God to provide when we've already been told in his word that he's the great provider? Why ask? Because again, prayer is about relationship. To think that we just need to think something without ever asking is lazy, and it's a misunderstanding of relationships. Years ago, my wife and I, and I believe Reagan and Lorelai, went on a river rafting trip with a youth group that I was serving in. And the speaker shared a message. Uh, and after he shared a message, a youth kid named Kevin, not Kevin Chang, but they're friends, a kid named Kevin came up to me and asked me this question about Abraham and Isaac. He said, if God knew that Abraham by faith would sacrifice his son, why did he want Abraham to go through with it? Seems a little messed up. It's a good question which many of us probably have struggled with from time to time. But here's the thing. It's not that Abraham needed to prove anything to God, nor that God didn't know, but Abraham didn't know that he would actually place obedience to God over his past idol, which was his son. And he tells us that when we pray, 
It's not that God doesn't know what we need, nor is surprised by what we ask for, but we need to voice our need and our dependence to also show ourselves that we are in need and dependent upon God. So give us our daily bread, Jesus says. His providing for our needs isn't something that is just automatic, but because God has relationship with us, it's something he wants to do. James, the half-brother of Jesus, speaking regarding wisdom, speaks to the early church about their wrong motives and the reality that in their pride, they do not ask for wisdom. In James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our reliance on God is not just when stuff is going haywire. Our reliance on God is something that is a lifestyle for a Christian. Because our need and dependence on God is something that we are daily reminded of as we pray. That's why prayer is so important. Let me say it this way. I think this might be a takeaway for a few of you. Prayer reminds us who we pray to, and we're reminded we're not him. So Jesus continues and says this. Forgive us our sins, verse 4. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. This is like 15 minutes into my sermon. This is where I kind of hit stride because this has been super weird for me. I don't know about you guys. But Jesus, as you look at this passage, as Jesus is telling his disciples how to pray, what does he say? He says, forgive us our sins. Who just said this? Jesus, the sinless one. The one who has never sinned, who never strayed from his Father's will, tells us that in prayer we ought to confess and ask for forgiveness from our sins while understanding that forgiveness breeds forgiveness. Let me say it pretty simply. I've said it before. You've heard it from other people before. Forgiven people forgive people. This is something that many of us struggle with. We enjoy and take for granted our forgiveness. And then the only reason I say that is because I know how hard it is for me to forgive others when they have wronged me. Anybody else? Anyone else today? But Jesus points out this human condition, that even as we come to the forgiver, we ought to acknowledge our need for forgiveness and our application of forgiving others. You know, before it was kind of easy. Now I'm kind of starting to speak into where we're at. Human forgiveness doesn't justify us. Only Jesus can do that. But human forgiveness demonstrates true repentance. And let me make a bold statement that's been made for centuries, but I would say that in today's society, we fiercely disagree with what I'm about to say. In order to be forgiven we must first acknowledge our debt that we are sinners who need grace. It has to begin with the fact that we are indebted to God because we've sinned against him. Now, I don't have an identity rooted in my sin anymore, but that is only possible because God in his spirit convicted me of my trespasses against him and gave me the solution, the satisfaction for my sin, which was a sinless savior named Jesus Christ. 
Then Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation. I think we often think that God will tempt us to test us. But I don't see that in scripture. I see that God allows for temptation to stretch us and makes us more reliant upon him, but I don't see that he is the tempter himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth, and I know you guys have heard this or you've quoted it maybe a little wrong. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So it's not that God won't give you anything you can't handle. He absolutely will but he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear without being able to turn to him. I don't know what this pandemic has been like for you. I mean, I know it's just really nice to be together and to see one another and to talk and know that we're doing somewhat okay. But I think heading into the pandemic, at least for me, like this is real talk. If you've never heard me preach, I'd do this. Um, I had a sabbatical plan for June and July, and that didn't happen, mostly because everything was closed, but also because I felt like it was a bad time to kind of leave the church for two months. But God, and but God is something that we say here a lot. Around the middle of June, my prayer life with the Lord became much more frequent, and it became a lot more honest. I was struggling with being a pastor in a pandemic. There, I said it. It was honest because even though I know I felt that way, up until that point, I never actually confessed it to God, which is ridiculous if you think about it, because he knew. But I was playing games, and Moises, God doesn't play games. And I was keeping it to myself. But then I came to him, and I just told him what was on my heart, that I, what, my heart wasn't in pastoring via screens like it was pastoring in person. I missed the rhythm that included seeing everybody and personal interactions and giving you hugs as you walk into the church and as you leave, unless you went out the other side so you didn't have to get a hug from me. I struggle with the fact that the church was needing to be done virtually. And I'm pretty sure many of you have struggled with the exact same fact, because if you didn't, you probably wouldn't be here. But God met me. I admitted my struggle. God not only changed my feelings, are you ready? God changed my mind. Not that I no longer want to meet in person. This is awesome. Even with masks and no hugs. But he changed my mind of thinking only of myself and how this situation affects me. I stopped looking inward. I started to look towards how God could get glory through me in the middle of a pandemic. And boy, did my outlook change. Now between a pregnancy, in case you didn't know, Aaron's pregnant, my wife, and a new house, our life has been crazy the past few months. But I also have a revived love for the city of Santa Clara and the church known as Church of the Valley. I didn't get a sabbatical yet, It's totally happened in elders. But I did get to experience a break from doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I realized that not only do I love change, if you didn't know that about me, I do. But church as we know it is and will be different from now on. And I know for some of you, 
Hearing that's like the worst news ever. I'm sorry. But the reality is that God isn't stagnant, nor does he need a building to get glory. Can somebody say amen? The church has always been and will always be God's people. His ecclesia of movement of people gathering and scattering to make much of his name. And it was because of my relationship manifested through prayer with God that I started to experience what some would consider breakthroughs of sorts. Because this passion was revived to see men and women and children know and grow more into the likeness of Jesus. The goal and the target has not changed at COV, but how we do what we do is and will always be flexible. When I helped start a church plant with a few of you, we spent a lot of time in prayer, didn't we? We spent a lot of time being dependent about how God may shake up our plans every time we made a plan. And I think that this pandemic, if I'm honest, has become the ultimate shaking up of how we do things as a church. And yet God still gets glory. Even if it's through a screen on a YouTube playlist or through a Zoom call or through a masked meeting on someone's lawn, God is big enough and important enough that our comfort and the way that we have always done things should not dictate how we believe that God gets glory. Can I get an amen from a kid on a playground? Prayer has changed my attitude, not because I did prayer, and praying is the secret sauce. In prayer, my attitude and my outlook has changed all because of who I was praying to. Prayer is all about relationship with God. We don't attempt to get God to do what we want. We get more connected with God as we do what he wants. That's good. You guys will eventually write that down. So Jesus continues, and he tells a story that most of us struggle with or misunderstand, but it's, wait, Kyle, it's not cement. What is it? Concrete. It concretes. I said cement, and he teased me. It's concrete. It concretes a point. No, that it, cement works better. It cements a point that he was previously making to the disciples who asked him how to pray. Here's how it goes. If you have your Bibles, it's starting in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, stay six feet away. No, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you that even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. <laughs> All right, this story is weird, isn't it? Anybody? Like, if you read this story, it almost sounds like God needs to be pestered, and in his annoyance, he'll do, you, do for you what you ask. Y yes and no. See, it's not in his annoyance, nor is there a formula but Jesus is absolutely pointing out a truth about prayer and the power that is in it through the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses this example of someone who is persistent. And prayer often is not seen as something that needs to be persistent as much as emotional. 
We may think the more passionate we are when we pray, the more God can hear us. In fact, uh, Chaney, do you remember this? The first time we were ever here, when I guest preached and you guys came with me, uh, a woman who will remain nameless gave us a, a, a tour of the building, and we were talking about uh, a church that was meeting here, and she goes, yeah, they pray so loudly. They act like God's hard of hearing. I still thought that was awesome. That's not the case. And based on what God says here in the story, he is pointing out that it isn't the amount of your will or the passion of your will, but the persistency of your prayer that may be involved in God answering your prayer. But let me unpack that a little bit. See, he has a much greater point than you should really just ask a lot and get what you want from God. See, he continues in verse 9 and he says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus uses these words that we may tend to read without any context in mind. That as long as we ask, as long as we seek, as long as we knock, we'll get what we're looking for. But Jesus says this right after explaining a parable that has much more to do with the consistency and the persistency of the person who is asking. So don't read the statement of Jesus's in a vacuum without reading what he's implying based on the context. I know for me, I pray generally for stuff once. I pray with passion. I use all the proper Christian-y words. Father God, you are good. I say it in the right tone. It sounds very pastoral. But then I pray that request and I don't ask again. It's a really quick one and done. And then you know what is worse than the fact that I only asked once? That sometimes God answers the prayers that I forgot I asked. And take for granted the fact that God provided the answered prayer. I was having this conversation with one of our elders, John Colburn, and as we were talking about this, he was telling me how he realized he was doing this all the time. He would pray and he would ask God for things and then he would totally forget and then take for granted the fact that God answered the prayer. So you know what he did? I know a lot of you are like pragmatic, you like application, here you go. You know what he did? He started to journal every prayer he ever asked. And then he would start to look back at it. And you know what that created in him? Worship. You know why? Because he started to see how God was involved in so many of his prayers. So, for what that's worth. But I'm really grateful for this story that Jesus is explaining because it reminds me that as I pray, I get in line with or I align my will with God's. And it may not be the first time I pray. It might not be the second time I pray. Heck, it might not be the 15th time I pray. But in relationship with God, I become more and more aligned with God and his will, and I thank the Lord because that is a gift. But look at Jesus as he unpacks this analogy even more. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your sons ask for a fish, will give him a snake instead? (laughs) Or if they ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Speaking to those who are fathers, and really this could be to all of us as we're all sons and daughters, If your child asks for a fish, for a need, which of you fathers are going to give them a snake? To say as if your children ask for something that is good, are you going to give them something that harms them? We wouldn't. You wouldn't ask for an egg and then, or get asked for an egg and then give them a scorpion. This is not what we would do. And his point is that earthly fathers don't do this 
But then look where he goes. And get mad at him, not me, based on what he's about to say. If you then, though you are evil, I'll just let that sit for a second, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus lays out some truth right here. And this isn't just for fathers. This is for humans. Those of us who are evil, you know who that is? That's me. That's you. We are born into sin. We are not good without God. Don't forget that. But those who are evil, they give good gifts to their children. How much more will our Father in heaven, who is holy and perfect and sovereign, not give good gifts to his children? But look at what he says. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him, ask of him. Now, I know some of us are pumped. Yes, Holy Spirit, that's what he's talking about. He's not hidden. He's all up in this passage. Yes, yes, he is. But what does Jesus mean when he says that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, in Matthew, which is a very similar passage as Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he quotes a similar saying of Jesus with a few differences. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 9, he says, Which of you, this sounds familiar, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Good gifts, the Holy Spirit. They seem to point out two possible interpretations. And I know for me, when I'm not sold on one, I want to teach both. That God gives spiritual gifts, both those that are used for the body of Christ, like teaching and mercy and discernment and many, many others, but that God also gives a spiritual blessing, more clarity as we walk with God a closeness of feeling that maybe we don't always experience, a depth of his word coming alive. That's one interpretation. And the other one, which I believe absolutely makes sense, especially considering how we began this as Jesus started to explain to his disciples how he prayed, his reference of the Holy Spirit is to take back and point us back to the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is given for the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit is given for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's not the only reasons, but that's what I believe he's pointing out here. See, the Holy Spirit guides us. He leads us, makes his very word come alive. He connects things through his word as we pursue Jesus and he convicts, he comforts, and he calls us to be holy and live in the righteousness that Jesus has gifted to us. The Holy Spirit even intercedes on our behalf. Did you guys know that? Like, have you read Romans? It's pretty awesome. Because I I often don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say to God. I know I should pray. Sometimes I pray because I want to fall asleep. Anybody else? Thank you, Megan. Everyone else is a liar. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul's speaking to the church in Rome, and he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, all right, I'm going to jump into that. That's so good. Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly of our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
God giving us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God's deposit in our future inheritance, Ephesians 1. But in the Old Testament, the first fruits were what people would give to God from a new crop, not waiting around for what was left over, but giving the first fruits, the most important fruits, the best fruits. We are given the first fruits in the Holy Spirit, church. Nothing. Wow. I'm going to go back to video. I'm just saying. I'm going to try that again. We are given the first fruits in the Holy Spirit, church. (laughs) Who resides in those who by grace have repented of their sin and by faith have trusted Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? That's a great rhetorical question. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul points out what theologians call the already and the not yet, which is truly a Christian reality. We are saved by and unto Jesus. We have eternal life in knowing and being known by Jesus. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, but we wait patiently for him to come back for our resurrected bodies and for heaven forevermore. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit, capital S, himself, it's a he, intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our heart, he's speaking of God, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf, through wordless groans. This isn't by making a noise or a specific prayer language. This has to do with the spiritual reality that we are connected to God in perfect fellowship and relationship because of the gift of Jesus's perfect record and the spirit who indwells us and helps us pray alongside God's will. Have you ever been praying and all of a sudden as you prayed something, you're like, where did that come from? Sometimes that could be the Spirit, but a lot of times it's quiet and we don't even hear it. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf through these wordless groans. But we get the opportunity to understand that as we're walking with God and in His will, we have the opportunity to pray to Him. And if you don't pray well, that's okay. There's so much more I can say about prayer, but like Jesus, I don't want to just talk about it. I actually want to do it. And you guys kind of have your space, and I know a lot of people don't like to have to pray out in front of other people, and so because you have space, you're not going to have to really pray with other people listening. But let me tell you, before we pray, how God tends to respond to prayer. He tends to have three answers. Yes, no, not yet. And that third one, and I bet you a lot of us are dealing with that third one, that's where faith is primarily tested, and patience is primarily produced. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, delayed answers are not only trials of faith, but they give us an opportunity of honoring God by our steadfast confidence in him under apparent repulses. So church, I'm going to ask us to pray for the next few moments. Some of us are getting a little bit of a tan. Some of us are cold. And if you're watching this playlist on, if you're watching this on the playlist this weekend, you have the opportunity to pause this because we might move a little faster than you want to, and you're welcome to do that. But I want to practice prayer. 
And it's not going to be loud. In fact, I'm going to encourage all of us to either be quiet as we speak to God through our minds, which trust me, he knows what's all up in your head. And maybe for some of us, I'd encourage us to speak to him quietly out loud just so we can hear our voice as we speak to him. But let's allow it to be a low level as to not distract others around us as we pray. But I'm going to lead us in prayer. So I need you to get into a prayer posture. I don't know what that is for you. It might be exactly what you're doing right now. That's totally fine. But whatever prayer posture you want to get into, I want to encourage you to do that. See, we don't use the Lord's prayer as a formula, but we absolutely want to be in line with the motivation that Jesus speaks of in this passage. So if you're not yet following Jesus yourself, I'd encourage you to either sit quietly or try out what I'm encouraging us to do. Not because prayer is magic, but because prayer is part of our dialogue with God. And if he's real, if he truly created you, if he truly knows you and is available, why wouldn't we want to converse with him? So here we go. I'm going to pray slowly, and then I'm going to ask something of you to maybe say a word or to say something. You don't have to say it loud. You can just say it where maybe you're the only person who hears it. But I'm just going to ask you to say this. So don't repeat after me. Just hear me as I pray to God. Father, we come to you as a group of people wanting your name to be glorified. Right now, would you just speak some word that describes God to you? I'm going to go with an easy one. God, you are good. God, you are holy. God, you are just. And Father, we want you and who you are to be on display in this world. Lord, there are times I don't want your glory, but Lord, or I want your glory for myself. But Lord, help me want Jesus to be made much of in everything I do and everything I say. Father, we ask that your kingdom advance in Santa Clara, in San Jose, in Cupertino, in Sunnyvale, all of Santa Clara County and to the ends of the earth. And if you in your grace want to use us, would you help us be willing and ready to do whatever you tell us to do? Right now, I'd ask you, as you're sitting in this prayer posture, would you just pray for someone in your life that you would love to see God rescue, to change, to transform, to draw to himself? And if you're comfortable saying their name out loud, do that where you are. If not, speak it in your mind. Father, I pray for Eric. I pray that you would get a hold of his heart. Abba, Father, would you continue to provide for our needs, and may we not take for granted the opportunity we have to ask, to talk with you, to spend time with you any and every moment of every day. Would you just share a need with God 
that you know you have or someone close to you has right now as you sit there with the Lord. Father, would you protect would you protect the baby that is growing inside of Aaron? And Father, would you continue to keep us and the people around us safe and healthy, especially from COVID and the change of weather which we're about to endure? Would you spend just a moment praying for someone in your life that you know is high risk or maybe is sick right now? Lord, forgive me for the sins that I and we have committed and are committing. Thank you that we don't earn your love and forgiveness, but receive it through your Son. Would you give us the faith and want to forgive those around us that sin against us and sin against you? This is a hard one, guys. Would you just pray for someone right now that you know has wronged you? Would you pray a blessing over them? And Father, would you shield our eyes and our pride and everything else that wants to pull us away from living today for you while we in dependence run to our holy and perfect God If you are willing where you are, would you confess something to God that you know is standing in the way of you feeling like you're good enough to be with him, even though it's all because of Jesus? Lord, I thank you. I thank you that because of Jesus, because of the gospel, that we are made righteous, not because we are good, but because we are his. And because of, by faith, we can know that Jesus is enough. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Aaron, would you come up? And-